your luck can change with the tide. Laura Maitland is always delighted by the hundreds of years of history that the busy River Thames can reveal whenever she goes mudlarking. Every tide reveals new treasures. It's constantly eroding. The mud is constantly revealing new objects. As a marine scientist, Jonathan White explores how ocean tides shape our world and how they're poised to get our attention as the climate warms. As the sea level rises, it changes the resonant quality of the coastal basin, so it's going to change the tide in every place. When traveling in Israel, Ava Marie Everson's faith got a boost when she visited places mentioned in the Bible. There is a tomb, and you can see the place where the stone would have been rolled in front of the cave. An Easter visit to the Holy Land, understanding the spirit of the ocean, and what the tides uncover in London. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. In my latest book, For the Love of Europe, I share highlights of a lifetime of exploring Europe, my favorite experiences, sights, and encounters in 100 essays. Order your copy today at ricksteves.com. Watching the tide come and go can be quite dramatic at a few special places on Earth. A marine scientist and avid surfer helps us appreciate the science and spirit of the ocean in just a bit on today's Travel with Rick Steves. And we'll hear what low tide can reveal on the busy River Thames, where mudlarks find treasures from London's past. We'll also look at the revolutionary architecture on top of the cathedral in Florence. Its beautiful dome has defined that city's skyline for 600 years as ground zero for the Florentine Renaissance. Let's start with an Easter observance in Israel. Ava Marie Everson is an American Christian who wrote a pilgrimage guide to places to visit and even touch from the Old and New Testaments. Her book, Reflections of God's Holy Land, shows how the land itself bears witness as something of a fifth gospel. Ava, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Rick. What does that mean to you when, when you think that people would say the Holy Land is like the fifth gospel? Oh, that just makes my heart flutter. Uh, just such a beautiful thing to say. And it's so true. When you're there, you hear God's heartbeat and you feel his breath on your face. So I definitely can relate to that. Well, get a little more concrete with me if they had concrete back then. Uh, specifically, where, where would you be where you most vividly feel biblical times and where sitting there and reading the Bible really uh, makes more sense? Everywhere. I mean, seriously, everywhere. Obviously, there are modern cities in Israel, and there are places that are more modern <laughs> than others. But everywhere you go, uh, you have the opportunity to see the landscape and to imagine it as it was and to see evidences of the stories that you grew up or that you're just learning for the first time. Now, I love the way you've designed your book. First, there's a scripture, and then there's a photo, and then there's the sort of factual rundown called Did You Know? And then there's Reflections. Those little bite-sized chapters are easy to absorb and thought-provoking. I'm going to give you a, a little series of places in the Holy Land. What I'd like you to do is just limit it to a few sentences, but you tell me why these places are meaningful for a Christian pilgrim or, or somebody going there on a journey of faith. Let's talk about the Dead Sea. 
Oh, I love the Dead Sea. The thing for me about the Dead Sea is that when you're sitting there, behind you are the Judean mountains, and in front of you are the Jordanian mountains. And what I was reminded of when I was sitting there was that this is the lowest place on earth, and it's the saltiest water in the world. And I thought about that scripture that says that God holds our tears in vials in heaven, We come over giant mountains, wonderful experiences in our lives, and then we we hit a low in our lives. Something happens to make us sad or to knock the wind out of our sails, and, and we cry, and we feel like we really are at the lowest place on earth. But if we just look ahead, there's another mountain. That's what I loved about the Dead Sea. Talk about the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem. The Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem is a place where you can go and reflect on the birth of Christ. One of the things for me was remembering that it's geography and that Christ was born in my heart. But to reflect on what it must have been like for this young woman who was coming into a a village that she probably wasn't familiar with and suddenly thrust into uh, an experience she was not familiar with, but how God used that and her whole life changed. So it helps you connect with Mary and and her position. Yeah, yeah. when I think of Bethlehem, I connect more with Mary than I actually do with Jesus. And then talk to me about the Via Dolorosa. Well, that certainly is an experience, and it's one that it takes uh, a lot of time. This is the road that Jesus climbed with the cross on his back after he was condemned to go up to the hill of Golgotha, right? That's correct. And in Jerusalem today, it even begins before that. It begins at the place where he would have gone into the house of uh, Herod and Caiaphas and the different paths that he would have walked from the time of his arrest until his death. It's something that you take very slowly. You cannot take it all in the first time. Now, you've got pilgrims here from all over Christendom that are literally stopping at the stations of the cross. I mean, you've Mm -hmm. got them duplicated all over Christendom, but here you actually have, what is it, 12 or 13 stations of the cross. Yeah, I think it's uh, either uh, 12 to 14. Now, what I I learned, Ava, from your book is that the Via Dolorosa is not out in the countryside. The whole Roman style of justice was you condemn somebody and then you you make it very public. And the Via Dolorosa was right in the middle of the town. And the whole idea was to parade the criminal past all the citizens on the way to his execution. Right. And through the marketplace. And today you still walk through the marketplace. You get that sense of what it would have been like, uh, people turning and staring. Now, he ended up on Golgotha, the place of the skull. But today that is marked by the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, right? There's a little bit of, uh, oh, no, it was over here. No, it was over here. If you walk the traditional Via Dolorosa, then you do end up in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. If you walk outside the Damascus Gate, then you can see what appears to be a skull on the side of a hill, which is closer to what is known as the Garden Tomb. So you can get sidetracked on, uh, you know, specifically where was it, but that sort of pollutes the whole experience, I, I would It imagine. really does. It really does. Because when you talk about the Garden Tomb, isn't there some discussion over where was the uh, roll away the stone tomb? Well, in in the garden tomb, there is a tomb, and you can see the place where the stone would have been rolled in front of the cave. The actual Um, spot. Yes. You know, the bottom line is, is whether it's in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre or it's in the garden tomb, there are no bones. There is no body. And that's what we celebrate. Well, that's the whole idea, the resurrection. That's right. And that's, that's Easter. That's right.
We're revisiting an Easter time interview we had a few years ago with author Ava Marie Everson. She celebrated a life-altering pilgrimage to Israel by writing Reflections of God's Holy Land with an American-born Israeli co-author. They cover sites mentioned in the Bible from the wilderness of Judea to Jerusalem. Ava Marie's also written dozens of novels. Her latest recounts the Southern family's ups and downs and the value of what we leave behind. It's called Dust. Her website is avamarieeversonauthor.com. Ava, you co-authored this with a Jewish friend, uh, Miriam Feinberg-Vamush. Your book is really quite a devotional book for Christians. How did Miriam's contribution affect your work? Uh, in the most positive of ways. First of all, Miriam understands the Jewish faith, obviously, and the traditions, the history of a people that Jesus was born into. And so, of course, the root of our faith is the Jewish faith. We chose not to argue about the one thing that we don't agree on, but instead to focus on the many, many things that we do agree on. Miriam has been leading Christian tours for over 30 years. And we laugh because I have been a teacher of Old Testament theology for a lot of years. And she says that I know her scriptures better than she does. And I have to admit, she knows my scriptures (laughs) better than I do. So first of all, we could all guess, but tell me, what is the main difference between your understanding of God and Miriam's understanding of God? Oh, when it comes to the understanding of God, very, very little. Um, Between the Jewish faith and the Christian faith, we just don't agree on whether or not Jesus was Messiah. For Miriam and myself, just the way that we handled it with each other, there was an afternoon we were in a church, and it was obviously very ancient. We were looking at these fabulous paintings that went all the way around the room of the sanctuary. And it started with the depiction of of Gabriel coming to Mary and telling Mary, you know, you, you will be the mother of God and all the way to the ascension. And as I'm walking around and Miriam's two or three paintings ahead of me, I, I looked at her and I said, you know, Miriam, I, I, I don't understand why your people don't recognize that he was Messiah. And, and she looked at me and she said, what are you saying, Eva? And I said, well, he's the guy with the halo over his head. And of course, we just laughed, you know, (laughs) because there's so much love and there's so much respect between the two of us. And I tell you, honestly, as a Christian, that until you understand your Jewish roots, that that really you're, you're coming at it like the glass is half full. Because once you understand that, it it just brings it to life. Give me one practical way that your Jewish friend helped you better appreciate the Holy Land as a Christian. Oh, my goodness. Just one? (laughs) Just one. Um, First of all, everything that Jesus did was based on his Judaism. And everything that he did that we celebrate today was around the Jewish feasts and festivals. Mm -hmm. So understanding some of those so the Those context. feasts and festivals better helps us to understand more what Jesus was doing. Probably one of my bigger moments was understanding better the Seder meal, which would have been the Last Supper as we celebrate mm-hmm. it, and then understanding the tradition of the Jewish bride and bridegroom and how that relates to what Jesus was saying to his disciples about being the bridegroom. There are so many aha moments I remember the first time I was there, I started to laugh at how many times I went, oh, (laughs) yeah, because it made so much more sense after seeing it. One of the things that really stunned me when you're on the edge of the Judean desert and the wilderness itself, 
I always pictured it as being flat. When I think of desert, I think it's flat. And this is brutal and rugged and harsh. And they're the mountains of packed sand are higher than you can possibly imagine. And when you picture Jesus walking out into that versus just walking out into a flat land, and then you think about 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, suddenly it takes on a whole new meaning. So for me, that was a, that was a huge moment. Being out in the Galilee when winds and waves actually started to pick up and realizing just how tumultuous that moment was for the disciples so much more, you know, telling than just reading about it in a book. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Ava Marie Everson. Her book is Reflections of God's Holy Land. Ava, fascinating conversation. What an inspiration to go to the Holy Land as a kind of a pilgrimage to better understand and get closer to God, whether it's uh, as a Christian or a Muslim or a Jew or somebody who just has a feeling for their creator. Absolutely. A trip to the Holy Land will change your life. I can tell you It changed my life, and I have never met a single person before, during, or after my trips to Israel that did not say the same. A visit to Israel changes your life. It changes your perception of God, and it changes your perception of your relationship with Him. And if you can go with the uh, help of a book that organizes your thoughts and gives you a context, like the book you've written, I think that makes it even more meaningful. Again, Ava Marie Everson, author of Reflections of God's Holy Land, thanks so much and best wishes. Thank you so much. J'ai un petit coq dans mon panier qui n'a jamais encore chanté au point du jour il chantera. Alléluia. We'll go from the Bay of Fundy to the Duomo of Florence in just a bit. Up next, hear what historical finds mudlarking can unveil in the shores of the River Thames. It's travel with Rick Steves. It used to be how some of the poorest Londoners found stuff to sell just to get by. Today, mudlarking is a popular way to explore the history London's buried along the banks of the River Thames. Roman hairpins, medieval buttons, 18th century coins, they're all nestled in the mud, waiting to be found when the tide goes out. Laura Maclem is a licensed mudlarker. She's spent more than 15 years training her eyes to find artifacts along the Thames. Her book, Mudlark, In Search of London's Past Along the River Thames, explains how nearly every item you find can tell a piece of British history. Laura joins us from her home base in London. Thank you for inviting me, Rick. I just love the thought of, you know, going to London and realizing you got a whole new dimension just slopping through the muck at low tide on the Thames. Talk a little bit about how the Thames is, is actually a tidal river. I think a lot of people don't even realize that when they're in London. It is, yes. The Thames is a tidal river from Teddington out to the estuary. And um, a lot of people think about the Thames as just that wiggly bit that goes through central London. But actually, it's a, it's a river that is a completely different beast at the beginning of the tidal Thames at Teddington. It's very almost countryfied and bucolic uh, out to the estuary where it's just wild and, and windy and windswept. It's just the most beautiful place. And and yes, the river goes up and down uh, twice every 24 hours. Okay, and so much history. There's so much history of, of England that's been just, in a lot of ways, the Thames has been the lifeblood of that. And people, you know, comb through the rocks and the mud to find bits of that history. Give us a, just a little background. What is mudlarking um, historically? And then you even have a, 
a mudlarking society today with a popular Facebook page. Tell us just the context of beachcombing on the Thames. Yes, I mean, London's really only where it is because of the River Thames. And there is 2,000 years or more of uh, history that's been thrown and lost in the river. And so, as I say, it's a, it's a tidal Thames and, and twice a day, every 24 hours, the river falls low enough for us to get onto the foreshore, which is the riverbed. And you get a chance to go down there and start to search for these objects that have been lost and found. And every tide reveals new treasures. It's constantly eroding. The mud is constantly revealing new objects. And you never, never know what you're going to find. So you could find a, a prehistoric flint lying next to a Victorian coin or a medieval buckle lying next to, uh, say, a Roman hairpin. And it, it's the most fantastic place to go. You know, it's it's interesting when you say that the tide replenishes the beachcombing opportunities because I couldn't figure that out. Years ago, a guide took me beachcombing on the Thames at low tide in London, and I was walking through the little pebbles, and I found these white tubes. They looked like insulation tubes from the 1960s or something like that. And he told me, no, those are Victorian pipe stems. And I realized these are historic. You know, Charles Dickens could have sucked on one of these things. And I realized, why is all of this historic stuff in the rocks today? And if I come back in two months, it's going to be there again. And every time I walk down those steps when I'm in London to get down to the beach, I find there's all of these historic tiles and these historic stems of pipes. And, and that's just the easy stuff to find. But I, I didn't realize it's actually replenished by the tide. Is that right? That's right. I mean, some of it's washing in from further out, but a lot of it is actually in the mud, uh, they use domestic refuse and rubbish to build up the foreshore, particularly in central London, um, because it was a working environment. They needed, in its natural state, a river is a V-shape. And so they needed it to be flat next to the river wall so they could the barges could rest on it at low tide and they could unload the contents. And so they used all this rubbish to build up the foreshore and it's slowly being eroded because nobody's looking after the foreshore anymore. It used to be mended and, and the revetments, the walls that contain all this rubbish were fixed. And these days it's all falling apart and um, the river is actually quite busy. There's quite a lot of river traffic on it. And as they go past, the waves are eating away at the mud. So this is a new word for me, foreshore. We've got the embankment and is the foreshore area, the flat area at the bottom of the embankment? The foreshore is, is effectively the riverbed. It's it's the, the it's the muddy bed. bit at the bottom of the river wall. Okay, now mudlark that has a it's a name that goes back to Dickensian times, right? Mudlarking was something people did a long time ago. It is the very first reference I found dates back to the end of the uh, 1700s, and they were talking about these gangs of river workers. Some of them were uh, thieves. They were they were going on board the ships and they were throwing objects off. And it was the mudlarks searching around in the mud that were picking up these. Okay, these, so these today things. people, you know, people in big third world countries, capitals, they they mudlark through the garbage dumps to scavenge, and it's a whole industry. And in poverty stricken. England, 200 years ago, people would scavenge on the riverbanks for things and where they find rags and rope and things to sell. Um, today, there's actually, it, it's, a, it's a hobby. Uh, you're part of a mudlarking society. Tell us a bit about that. It is. I mean, I mean, the Victorian mudlarks were looking for anything they could sell or eat or use um, just to keep themselves alive. And today we're really lucky we do it. Uh, modern day mudlarks just do it because for our interest in history. 
Um, and there is a mudlark society. I'm not actually a member of the mudlark society, but there are, mm. I think, about uh, 1,500 active um, permits at the moment. Mm. So it's it's an increasingly, it's, it's a hobby that's increasing in, in popularity. So more and more people are going down there to do it. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're mudlarking right now with Laura Maitland. And Laura's been scanning the River Thames for 15 years, finding artifacts dating back as far as the 11th century. Her book is called Mudlark, In Search of London's Past Along the River Thames. And in the book, she describes the fun she's had beachcombing in London. Laura, in your book, you call the Thames England's longest archaeological landscape. Tell me a little more about how it's an archaeological landscape. Uh, it's an archaeological landscape in as much as you can search the tidal Thames from uh, one end at Teddington right out to the estuary. And, you know, human beings have left their mark all the way along it. It's it's one of the world's busiest rivers and has been, you know, historically. So there is stuff to find all the way down it. Um, and it varies depending what what was going on uh, nearby. What do you look for and where are the best places? I would imagine like in front of the Tower of London, you might find there's, there's a, a water gate there. People must have spilled things into the, into the mud when they were loading treasures in and out of the Tower of London. There is. Um, actually, the, the bit of foreshore in front of the Tower of London is a protected area. It's a, a scheduled monument, so nobody's allowed down there to search. Um, there are several scheduled monuments along the Thames that are protect, as protected as Stonehenge, actually. So you have to oh. be uh, very careful there uh, and not search and not take anything away. Where's your favorite place to mudlark? Do you know, it depends what mood I'm in, to be honest. Uh, you do find the richest variety of things in central London, obviously. You're going to find mm -hmm. things where there were more people. But then when you go out to to Wapping, then you start finding things that are associated with shipbuilding and, and uh, okay. you know, trade yeah. from the 18th century. And then you get out into the estuary, and that's where the Romans had their kilns. So you're finding Roman pottery. It's, it's amazing. And, and And the wonderful thing is you're not, You'd think if you're beachcombing, you want to be first, but because of the blessing of the tides, it's not who's there first. It's always replenished with every tide. So you can go to the same place week after week and still find new treasures. New things turn up on every tide. And the funny thing is that someone can walk along in front of you and they'll be looking. They've got different eyes. They'll be, they'll be seeing different things and they'll miss things. So it, it's really worth, you know, if you see people down there, don't just assume they found everything because they won't have found everything. I can, I can guarantee in fact, you wrote, Mother Nature rarely makes perfect straight lines or circles. And as the eye becomes more practiced, imperfections and patterns start to stand out. So you've actually trained your eyes. And if, if I was to walk down a stretch of the beach, and if you were to walk down the stretch of the beach, because you know what to look for, you'd find different things than me. Give us a little insight into that. Yes. Um, I mean, there's, there's a, I've been doing it for over 15 years now. And you, you learn to read the foreshore. You know, you learn to where things are likely to wash up, they wash up against posts and in dips and coins tend to stick to the, to the surface of the sand. And we at Mudlarks call it getting your eye in. Uh, and you learn to spot perfect circles and straight lines because nature doesn't make perfect circles and straight lines. And that's what really starts to stand out when you get your eye in. So let's talk nitty gritty here. First of all, is permission required? Can any old tourist go down there and legally do a little beachcombing? Uh, what do we need to know in, in that regard? Yes, you most definitely do need permission to do it. You need a permit from the Port of London Authority. Um, oh, so I've, been, I've been breaking the law when I do it. Well, when did you do it? Because they really well, they really tightened up on this in 2016. So if you did it oh. before then, you could probably all right. <laughs> oh, I, well, I'm going to do it next time I'm in London, and I don't think I'm going to get permission. What will happen? Oh. 
well, you should get permission because if you're if you're mudlarking without permission, you're breaking the law. Um, so yes, um, <laughs> that's probably so, serious. I think I was joking there, but you don't want to do that. Well, so. you don't want to do that. Are there tours? I mean, do they actually have guides that'll take you down to the riverbanks? There are. There are um, very few people have got permission to do tours, but there are a couple that I recommend. It's the Thames Explorer Trust and uh, Thames Discovery, and they're both non-profit organizations. Thames ah, Discovery, good. they're recording all the archaeolo- larger archaeological objects along the foreshore, and uh, Thames Explorer is all about education. So it's great. The money you pay goes straight back into the fantastic oh. work they do. On the well, river. that's beautiful. And I would suppose if you take the tour, you're an honorary guest. You don't need to worry about getting arrested. You don't have to worry about being arrested. You can, you don't need a permit because you can use their permit. The only thing is you can't take away the things that you find, um, but you will have a fantastic guide. They'll tell you how to look and where to look and tell you what you're finding as well. So it's really worth doing. Licensed mudlark Laura Maclem is our guest from London on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Laura has been scanning the forefront of the River Thames at low tide for years. In the U.S. and Canada, her book is called Mudlark. It's also a bestseller in Britain under the title Mudlarking, Lost and Found on the River Thames. Laura shares her finds on Twitter and Facebook at London Mudlark. I love this uh, passage from your book, Laura. You write, There, lying next to the eroding barge bed, as if it had just been dropped by a passerby, was a clunky copper coin dated 1797 with the arrogant head of George III looking remarkably composed in the mud. There's so much history you can find. When I was in the beachcombing moment with one of my London guides, he was explaining how you pick up these tiles and it actually tells a story about the Great Fire back in 1666, how London was getting away from one kind of roof that required more timbers because it was a bigger fire risk and timbers needed to be used for the Royal Navy and they were getting lighter tiles and all the old heavy tiles were tossed into the river and centuries later we see them in our in our sightseeing. Tell a little bit about that. For example, the, the history you can read into the tiles that you find. Well, uh, there are loads and loads of roof tiles down there. Um, you get the roof tiles with the round peg holes, and those are the ones that were held on by the by the wooden pegs. So those tend to predate uh, the Great Fire because after the Great Fire, they were being held on by nails, and they had more of a rough, square, stabbed hole. Uh, you get the tiles that have got animal paw prints uh, across them, and I love those because those are just a moment captured in time, that moment when maybe a, a cat ran across the tile, uh, followed by a dog in the tile maker's yard. And you can just imagine the scene, can't you? Oh, that's um, beautiful. And what I love about the things that I find, they're just the ordinary things like roof tiles that tell these incredible stories uh, about the past. We've got to remember also, London goes all the way back to ancient Roman times when it was called Londinium. What's your experience with finding uh, artifacts that actually go back to Roman times? It's surprisingly easy to find uh, Roman objects, actually, depending where you are. There's one spot in particular at the moment, and there are quite a lot of uh, nice Roman objects are washing out. I've found uh, Roman hairpins and game counters and obviously coins. And I've even got the uh, the hard, you know, the uh, when you have a sword and you have the scabbard that the sword goes into, there's always a hard bit on mm. the end called a, called a chape. I've got a, an ivory chape from the end of a Roman auxiliary soldier's um, yeah. sword, well, which is you know, quite that incredible. Is, that is something that's quite remarkable for an American. I'm a coin collector, and I can buy a Roman coin at an antique shop anywhere in England much cheaper than I can buy what we call an Indian head penny here in the United States. And that Indian head penny is just 120 years old, where this Roman coin is 2,000 years old. There were a lot of little Roman pennies tossed around back then. 
There were. Um, it said, well, the Romans obviously built the very first London Bridge, and it said that there was a shrine partway across, and that they were uh, just flicking pennies into the river, maybe as a as a thanks for a safe return, or possibly, you know, sort of to appease the the gods. And uh, when they pulled down the old London Bridge, the medieval bridge, there were so many Roman coins that were dredging up. They were dredging them up by the bucketful. So there's a lot of Roman coins. There's a lot of Roman coins in England. I think the Romans um, uh, were very good at losing small denomination coins. We do find a lot of them. You could spend a penny 2,000 years ago in Londinium. Yes. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Laura Maiklem, and her book is Mudlark in Search of London's Past Along the River Thames. We're beachcombing in London. And I love the thought that coins were, were not just something you would go to the store and buy something with, but they could be used decoratively on chains and pendants. And you write about how you found a lot of coins that were love tokens or or, or decorative uh, as a sort of a second life as a coin that ended up in the Thames. And you also talk at length about how you know, in your beachcombing or mudlarking, you find that one man's trash is a historian's treasure, and you find all sorts of examples of unhappiness, curses, and prayers, and happiness like wedding rings or sadness, a wedding ring that might have been thrown back into the river in a very sad day. Talk a little bit about uh, the emotions of, of beachcombing in London. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the uh, the Thames runs through one of the, the busiest cities in the world, um, and there's something about moving water. It, it, I think it takes your troubles away. I mean, I talk to the river as I, I mudlark. It knows more about me than probably anybody else. And there's something about the fact that it's moving. It's taking your troubles away. And, and people do go to it to throw things away that they don't want. So sometimes it can feel incredibly intrusive. I've found torn up photographs and love letters, um, wedding rings, as you said. People think that they're throwing things into the river and they'll never see them again. And what they don't think about are the, are the mudlarks <laughs> at low yeah. tide poking around, finding and them again. They can end up, and they can end up in a museum. Uh, you may not be able to see all of these on your quick visit to London or the Thames, but you can go to museums. And I forget the museum, but there was a bunch of drawers I could pull out and see, you know, rack after rack of things that were found mudlarking. Do you recall a museum in London that has a good collection of treasures from the, from the riverbank? The best museum to go to is the Museum of London. Um, okay. A lot of what they have there is uh, is stuff that's been found in the river, simply because the objects that we find in the river are so well preserved. Um, so they're often the best examples. Are they collected as things dug up on the Thames, or is it just scattered through di- different artifact displays that you wouldn't know they were found beachcombing? They they often put in, in the in the notes for the object. It says where yeah. it was found, and it'll say found on the Thames. Laura, for 15 years, you've been beachcombing the Thames. Uh, let's just uh, finish with, uh, I'm curious, what's your, is there a, a particular find that, that just resonates with you? What, what would you have from all the hours you've spent beachcombing that's on a shelf or on a wall in a special place in your home? The, the most, I mean, everybody asks me this, uh, and I've found thousands of things over the years, but probably the, the object that um, is most precious to me is a, a Tudor shoe. It's 16th century. And it's a child's shoe. It probably would have fitted my son when he was about five. When I found it and I pulled it out of the mud, it was in absolute perfect condition, as if it had dropped off someone's foot yesterday. And Mm. inside, you could see the little toe prints um, and the little heel mark from where where the last owner was wearing it and the, the lines across the top. And I think shoes are just so, so personal. And it's really that that I love about mudlarking, that reaching back through into history and literally touching the past 
And, and there's nothing like a shoe for that. England has such a rich and fascinating history, and it's, it's really quite exciting to think that it is remarkably preserved in the mud of the Thames. And if you know where to look and what to look for, you can resurrect that story even as a visitor. Laura, thanks so much for, for joining us and for sharing your discoveries. You're welcome, and I hope I see you in London soon. Every day when the work is behind you and the shop and the store put the lock on the door Just get away where your worries won't find you If you like, well, I'll tell you more Find out what Laura Maclem wears to go mudlarking in an extra from our interview. You can hear it on our website at ricksteves.com slash radio. Jonathan White follows the tides to discover the spirit of the oceans in just a minute. And we'll hear how one of the world's most beautiful cathedral domes reflects the confidence of the industrious citizens of Florence from 600 years ago. Happy Easter from Travel with Rick Steves. Cities like London and Venice have installed floodgates to control damage caused by ever higher tides. And in a few places, the power of the changing tides is starting to provide a new source of clean energy. For a deeper dive, pun intended, into what scientists are learning about the oceans, we're joined now by Jonathan White. His book, Tides, provides a global journey into the extraordinary events and looming threats shaped by ocean tides. Jonathan, welcome back to Travel with Rick Steves. Thanks for having me, Rick. So in your book, you talk about the tides as this uh, very complex relationship between the ocean, which covers, what, two-thirds of the Earth? And uh, celestial bodies. In a nutshell, how does the tide work? Well, really, it's a gravitational pull, the sun and the moon. And we always think about the moon, but the sun is 50% of the influence. So, so the a, sun is much, much bigger with much more gravity, but it's much farther away. So that's right. when you take that all into consideration, the moon has twice the pull of the sun. But when they work together, you got 150%. That's right. That's right. And if they work opposed to each other, you got a more wimpy tide. That's right. They call those neap tides, and they're, they're basically robbing each other of some of their gravitational okay. pull. What other things contribute to the rise and fall of the sea level because of tidal forces? Uh, because, you know, some places have almost no tide, and they've got the same moon, and other places have a huge tide. Uh, Mediterranean generally has almost no tide, but you go up into northern Canada, you got a, what, a 30 or 40-foot tide. Well, There's a lot to the tide. There are many, many levels to it, but really when it boils down to vibration or resonance. So what's happening there where you have a large tide in one place and not so large in another place is that the vibrational quality of those basins is different from one coast to another coast. And sometimes they're really tuned to the sun and the moon, and sometimes they're not so tuned. So if it's tuned, it's going to all work together, and there's going to be some sort of a synergistic response, and you've got a higher or a lower tide. That's right. That's right. In your book, you talk about internal clocks that are similar to tides that are in plants and animals and human beings. Uh, How do the internal clocks in creatures relate to the coming and going of the tides in the sea? Well, actually, we don't know a whole lot about that. It's one of those fields that I'm hoping that, uh, and a lot of other people are hoping that we're going to learn a lot more about in the next 50 or 100 years. But what's going on there, we do know that there are many, many creatures that are tuned to various cycles on Earth, be it the sun, most of us, the sun, but also all kinds of lunar cycles or tide cycles. 
For example, there are crabs that we know of that are highly tuned to tidal rhythms. And they're tuned to those rhythms because it has to do with feeding behavior mm. and survival and spawning. And these are clocks within their bodies that are very sophisticated. And we don't know where they are and we don't know where they work necessarily. So they would know when to eat, when to lay their eggs, when to all sorts of things according to the tide. That's right. So you mentioned in your book you've got these fiddler crabs. And if you put them in the Mediterranean where there's almost no tidal action, their tidal clocks or their internal clocks kind of go dormant. But you could take the grandchild of one of those crabs and move him to Hudson Bay and his internal clock would kick into gear? That's right. It's a genetic wiring. It's something that's in this crab, whether it needs it or not. So when you move a crab from the Mediterranean where there's, like you say, is not much tide, and then you move it to the east coast of the United States, for example, near Boston, within a couple of weeks, it will be completely tuned to that tidal regime. And that would let it harvest the sea a little smarter because it would take into consideration the tidal action. That's right. And it may be a survival thing. In the Bay of Fundy, it can be a survival thing because there's such a large tide that they need to know when it's safe to go out and forage and when when they've got to bury themselves because a large tide is coming back in. Ocean conservationist Jonathan White is our guest on Travel with Rick Steves. He shares the mysteries nature has shown him in his book, Tides, the Science and Spirit of the Ocean. His website is thejonathanwhite.com. It's fascinating because in your book you mentioned this huge difference between just a run-of-the-mill tide and, and a giant tide. And there's places famous for their tides, and it's not because the full moon is fuller. It's just because of the way the geology ties in with the celestial bodies that the sea rises and lowers more. But when people say, oh, it's a 10-foot tide, that doesn't mean the water goes out 10 feet more. We're talking depth. We're talking what was 10 feet deep is now mud. When you think about the drop of a huge tide, like the Bay of Fundy, 50 feet Does it drop 50 feet in the same time that a tide in Seattle goes out 6 feet? In other words, that would be a real fast drop because it's dropping 10 times as fast. Yes. So a 50-foot drop in sea level in 6 hours in the Bay of Fundy. That's right. You could die if you play it wrong. Yeah, you have massive currents there, massive amount of water that's moving in and out. In fact, they say that the same amount of water moves in and out of the Bay of Fundy during one tide cycle that's equal to all the outflow of the rivers of the world. Now, you could harness that somehow and have energy. Everybody's talking about clean energy. Tidal power, I mean, it's pretty simple. You just block the water when it comes in and you capitalize it as it trickles out, turning it into power. I mean, why don't we just harness tidal power, especially in places where there's a a 50-foot tide? Well, we're working on that. And there are lots and lots of challenges, as you can imagine. I mean, it's a very corrosive environment. The ocean is a very corrosive environment. And it's extremely turbulent. And we've got a lot of engineering uh, hoops to jump through. I'm sorry, those sound like wimpy excuses. We harness atomic power. We drill miles and miles into the mountain to get coal. You'd think you could build a little trap for the water and well, then make it earn its way out. Let me just tell you an example. Uh, in the Bay of Fundy, there, there are actually a number of testing grounds for tide power. So they're working on this. Oh, yes. They're serious and, about in it. In fact, you know, working on tide power has been happening since the first century A.D. This is a long a journey to try and figure this thing out. And right. there's always variations in every right. you know era. But 
what you're seeing these days is these devices that go down. They're, they're like windmills in the water, right? They go mm-hmm. down, they're anchored on the floor, and then they turn like a propeller turns, like a windmill. As, as there's a current, like, That's right. like a, uh, That's a water right. wheel on a river. Exactly. And in the Bay of Fundy, there's one testing place mm-hmm. called Force. Uh-huh. And it's a, it's a place that has a current of 18 knots or something, very, very right. fast current. Mm-hmm. And they call it the Mount Everest of testing sites. So they put... Uh, windmill-like device down there about seven, eight years ago, and it had a 60-foot diameter blade in it, and the thing crumpled in about two weeks. Really? So yeah. it is a challenge. Yeah, and when I talked to the the people at Force about it, they said, well, there's good news and bad news about that. You know, the good news is there's a lot of power down there. Yeah. And the bad news is we've got a long ways to go to figure out something that can actually withstand it. So the potential is there. Potential is but huge. In your book, you talk about you know how climate change and tides are going to combine and threaten cities that have high tides already. Uh, in your book, you said in the West Coast of the United States, we generally don't have such high tides, but New York, New Orleans, Honolulu, places in China, they will have a more coastal cities threatened by higher tides. So humans are adding to the rising sea level with climate change. But the tides are part of the problem, too, and it just seems only fair that we harness tidal power to mitigate some to of these equalize. problems. <laughs> just to equal out. Tell us about how tides and climate change are going to combine in the future to threaten coastal cities. So the tide, of course, is the changing of the level on a day-to-day basis that's, in theory, is influenced by astronomical factors. That's the sun and the moon. Nothing to do with climate change. It's going to happen either. Well, it's going to happen anyway, but it happens on the platform of global sea level rise, right? So as the sea goes up, the tides are going to go up. They're going to be higher because they happen on top of that surface or as they go down. But the other thing, and we talked earlier about resonance and the quality of a basin that is that is either tuned to the sun and the moon or not tuned right. in various degrees. Well, as the sea level rises yeah. or falls, it changes the resonant quality of the basins, the coastal basins. So it's going to change the tide in every place. Oh, so it could exacerbate the problem. That's right. It could make it worse in some places and can make it less in other places. Oh. We don't know exactly. And, and scientists are modeling this now, but it's a huge project. So if you look into the future, and who knows if it's 50 years or 100 years or 200 years, there's going to be rising sea level, which has nothing to do with tides because it has to do with melting glaciers and right. so on. And there's also going to be tides that in some places are more pronounced than others because of the shape of the land that the water's on. What are cities that are going to be threatened? I mean, is this going to cause potentially lots of climate refugees? Absolutely. I mean, we're having a little refugee problem now. There's a hundred million people living in Bangladesh that might have to pack up and move north. That's right. That's right. And, you know, part of the problem, of course, is that our populations have grown and that we've developed along the coast and we put a lot of money and infrastructure right on the coastal communities that are most threatened, right? 200 years ago, you just grabbed your cows and you walked up to higher ground. So our problem Mm -hmm. is because we've developed these areas and the sea level rise or fall from a geological point of view, it's nothing new. It, the sea is always changing. You know, mm-hmm. Rachel Carson says, today a little more land belongs to the ocean, tomorrow mm-hmm. a little less. And you talked in your book how it's been happening for centuries. The sea level yeah. has been slowly. Yeah, and there's no doubt that it's exacerbated now right. due to human-caused global warming issues and so forth. As and, ice caps melt, it's just yeah. uh, physics. You yeah. lose all this ice, it's going to yeah. drain into the ocean and raise it. 
This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Jonathan White. His book is Tides, The Science and Spirit of the Ocean. Jonathan, what are coastal cities doing to adapt to these inevitable changes? Are there any engineering projects going on that says, okay, we can't, I mean, they're not going to be able to stop it themselves, but at least they're not going to sit idle and, and become submerged. What are they doing to protect right. themselves? And, and every city has a unique challenge, you know, both in terms of sea level rise and tide and also their geography, you know, where they are mm-hmm. and so forth. Like island nations in the South Pacific that are very, very threatened, they can't do much about it. You, you can't build a wall around their island if right. the water's deep around it and so forth. But places like Venice or Rotterdam or London, they have gates in place, actually, that are functioning. And Venice is a great example because they've been building these gates. It's called the Moe's Project. They have three openings into the lagoon, and they are building gates that will come up during the highest tides and protect the city. And lucky for them, they can isolate it to three entries and cut that off and mitigate that problem. Exactly. Uh, Rotterdam, I believe, has a million people living within the flood zone of the tidal uh, river, and they've got this storm surge they've built, which is massive. Yeah. It's expensive. It's the size of two Eiffel Towers on their side on wheels that close in. New York is going to have to do something about that. Are they going to be inundated? New Orleans, Miami, and so on. That's right. And again, all those places are going to have different solutions. They've got the money. Yeah. The little atoll community in the South Pacific doesn't have the money. They just have to pack up and move to some mainland. Exactly. take them. And yeah. Seattle's sea level, but we don't hear about that here. Is that just because we're lucky that we don't have the size of tides that other communities deal with? That's right. And the geography that creates the problems. You know, the West Coast generally doesn't have the same intensity yeah. of problems with sea level rise as East Coast or even the South. But there are there are dozens of places, as everybody well knows, that are threatened right now. Miami being a big one, New York. Mm-hmm. and But New York is, is unique because it doesn't have a single river or something like that like London does. London has gates, right? They have gates down the Thames. The Thames barrier. Yeah. And interestingly... When they put those in, I think they were functional in 1980 or something yeah. like that. They were designed because a big storm in the 50s came through. Yeah. And, and they so, were designed to, to protect the city against tidal situation. And just lucky for them, they've got it in place as they're also dealing now with the rising sea level. That's right. That's right. And when it first went in, you know, for the first decade that it was in, it closed four or five times. And then the next decade, it closed about five or six times that. And today it closes, you know, 25 times what it did originally. So it's just an indicator that the situation is worsening. And in fact, they'll have to rebuild those gates to accommodate the change very soon. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Jonathan White. His book is Tides, The Sea and Spirit of the Ocean. Jonathan, thanks so much for giving us a better understanding of the ebb and the flow of the two-thirds of this planet that's covered by ocean. It's a pleasure to talk with you, Rick. My old high school travel buddy and the co-author of my book, Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, joins us now for a look at what's often considered the most beautiful cathedral dome in the world. If you've ever been to Florence, you've seen it. In fact, you can't miss it. It's the huge red and white structure atop Florence's cathedral. It's Brunelleschi's dome. Here to talk with me about that magnificent work is my friend and co-author, Gene Openshaw. Ciao, Ricardo. Ciao, Gene. Gene, the cathedral dome, designed by Filippo Brunelleschi back in the 15th century, is one of the world's most important architectural achievements. And it sits right at ground zero of the city of Florence, 
and ground zero of that cultural explosion that we call the Renaissance. Mm. In fact, it helped kick the Renaissance off. And no wonder. Um, here, take a look at it. Um, oh, you got a souvenir. I, I brought in this <laughs> poster of the dome that I bought on my last trip. Nice. It's gorgeous. It shows the dome from the exact spot everyone's familiar with, from right in front of the cathedral, or Duomo. You can see the cathedral itself. It's, the facade is white with that beautiful colored marble, mm -hmm. and then the red dome rising up from the church. Mm, and it is huge, and it's the same red tiles that you see all across the roofs of Florence. It just feels organically like part of the city. And then it's got those beautiful vertical ribs of white marble and the cupola on top. It weighs a lot, but it almost seems to float above the church. Mm, yeah. Because of its engineering marvels and perfect proportions, Brunelleschi's dome has been called Mathematics Set in Stone. It is amazing. And, and the big question you just got to wonder is, how did Brunelleschi actually build such a dome? Well, that's what the Florentines had to ask. Because if you remember, the church itself was built a century earlier but it was left unfinished because they didn't know how to build the dome to top it. They had this big, gaping 140-foot hole in the roof. It was too wide to span with the traditional scaffolding. One thought that uh, one architect had was, okay, well, what we'll do is we'll support the dome with a big mound of dirt inside the church, and we'll stick coins in the dirt so that when we're done... We'll just have the peasants come in and cart the dirt away. Sign me up. Nickels, <laughs> dimes, even a few quarters. Yeah. I guess they came to a better idea, and that would be hire the uh, the wonderful architect Brunelleschi in, in, what, 1420? 1420 it was. And yeah. he came in and he said, no problema. He knew how to build a dome that was self-supporting. It would rise in rings of interlocking bricks. So if you can that was the that. innovative thing, wasn't it? And if you can... Uh, to me, I think of it like an ice igloo. you got all these ice bricks, and <laughs> one, one row at a time, they get tighter and tighter, kind of leaning inward, working their way up to complete the dome. Perfect. And he finished it in a mere 16 years. It was the wonder of the age, something that had not been seen for a thousand years. The Florentines said not even the ancients could have done it. Oh, it's like putting the Pantheon on top of that Gothic church. And it has been described that way. I see the dome, Gene, as, as sort of the um, what kicked off the architectural renaissance. Think of how this dome inspired so many other great domes. Like Michelangelo's dome. That's right, because the Pope hired Michelangelo to go down to Rome and, and design the big new church, St. Peter's. Yes, and Michelangelo patterned his new dome after Brunelleschi's. He called Brunelleschi's dome beautiful, bellissimo. And he said that his own dome was kind of like Brunelleschi's big sister, Bigger, he said, but not more beautiful. Gene, even today, Brunelleschi's dome rises high above the Florentine skyline. For 600 years, this glorious dome has practically been the symbol of the city. And it calls to mind those great Florentines who rose from medieval roots to make the Renaissance blossom. You know, it stands today as, as of course, a proud symbol of the city, but more than that, a symbol of man's ingenuity. Yeah, it represents how both art and science can come together to create beauty. beauty. Flat-out beauty. Bellissimo. Bellissimo. Gene, it's fun riffing on culture with you. It's always a good reminder that a little art and history can add a whole new dimension to your travels. Grazie. Grazie. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Kaz Hall. 
and Donna Bardsley. We get website support from Amerikitnikon, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Affiliate relations are by Sheila Gerzoff. Rick posts frequently to Facebook and Twitter, and you'll find more with Rick online at ricksteves.com. And we'll look for you again next week with more travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves, and I love art. And in my new book, Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, I share my favorites with gorgeous photos and vivid descriptions. It's all in Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, Art for the Traveler. It's available now at ricksteves.com.